Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today on this lovely spring day, and, and most days, even if they're not lovely and spring-like, I'm joined by my my good friend, my business partner, the man who's starting to look a lot like me because we we've, we've reached that <laughs> that point in our relationship where we look like our significant other, except. You're not my wife, sir. You're my business partner. I am. I'm Jason Johnston Yellen, oh. and I will be recognized as such. <laughs> <laughs> Proclaim my moniker. Yeah, I happened to say to my, I was saying to my wife this morning about last night's tasting that we did. We both sat down in front of one another over Zoom, and you were in a dark T-shirt, and I was in a dark T-shirt, and you had your scraggly beard, and I've got my scraggly uh, chin beard. And we both had our flat caps on, <laughs> both kind of light colored <laughs> flat caps on. And it, it was in its own way, like looking into a mirror. For you, it was like looking 20 years into the future. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then it was, you did make me laugh. You said, OK, this, this is ridiculous. I'm going to go change my hat. And then you came back in a light colored flat cap. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing had changed. That's no, not true. It was just I a slightly laugh. lighter color flat cap than the previous one. And then I switched it up again and put a black flat cap on. That didn't, still didn't work. So I, I put my Westland cap on and that that worked in the end. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. How we laugh in these times. The things that we laugh at. Yeah, we need to. We need to. But here we go. Uh, Virginia has entered phase one of reopening. And we have patio drinking now available. Mm-hmm. We have social distancing among friends and backyards. It's interesting. And yet at the same time, the governor has said anybody going into a store must wear a mask. Good. Like yeah. I, I like that singular message. You know, we've seen the politicalization of mask wearing, which seems ridiculous. But to have the governor come out and say, look, here's the rules. You want to go into a business where there are employees who are facing multiple, multiple people every single day. You got to wear your mask. I like it. I like singular messaging. It's like no no shirt, no shoes, no service, right? Now just add no mask to the list. Yeah. And somewhat similar to you want to drive a car, put your goddamn seatbelt on. <laughs> Click it or ticket, yeah. I think they say. Yeah. Do you have singular messaging in Connecticut or is it still up to the individual? I don't think it's as cl- it was as clearly explained by our governor as it was from your governor. And I don't know quite why that is, because our governor does like, he enjoys his regulations. Mm-hmm. But no, for, for the most part, everybody's wearing their masks. And whether the governor is saying it or not, you know, when I go to the grocery store or to the gas station or, or what have you, everybody has a sign on their door saying, no mask, no entry, or no mask, no service. There you go. And I think, thankfully... Most shop owners are are just taking the safe approach. Yeah, yeah, no, it's smart. Our local grocery store. I had to stop in the other day to pick up a, a couple of cartons of almond milk. I managed to go three weeks without going to the store, which, with a family of four, I thought was a hell of an achievement. However, 
we did run out of almond milk, which meant the kids couldn't eat cereal, which meant I had a rebellion on my hands. Uh, certainly with a 13-year-old, the 10-year-old was like, let's go for four weeks. Let's see if we can do it. I was like, I love your wow. spirit, young man. But the 13-year-old was like, this is bullshit. And those were his exact words. This is bullshit. I need to be eating cereal. And at that point, you're like, listen, we're all doing our best to get along here. Um, so anyway, to, to make a long story longer, I stopped by our local grocery store. I was literally the only shopper wearing a mask. And then I got to the checkouts and the people doing the checking out, masks, gloves, behind a perspex yeah. screen. <laughs> it was like, oh, it's real here uh, where you check out. It's not so real over there where you go and touch everything and pick up things and put them in your cart. Mm. So I was very happy and I was very happy to get out of there as quickly as possible. And I wish people would take it a little more seriously when they're given free reign like that. And and so now I really hope with the governor's messaging in phase one that we'll now start to see, even in our local stores, our local groceries, that we'll start to see people in masks. Well, yeah, it, it, it would be nice. And even if the masks only help 0.01%, which we know is not the case, we know it's more than that, but even if it's 0.01%, that makes it okay to wear them. <laughs> yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna be standing in front of somebody who sees hundreds of people a day, do your little part. Be the one percent. Has your mask on? Let's get everyone out of here as safe as possible. But I'm left with a question, which is: for many many years, you and I have wandered mm -hmm. airports, and and Asian folk had had generated established. A reputation for being the people you would pass in airports yep, wearing masks, sure. and we would you know, we would often think to ourselves, that seems a bit much. I think when we go back to airline travel, I'll be walking around the airport with my mask on, just again, just to err on the side of caution. Does it make a difference? Mm -hmm. Potentially. Is it better to wear it than not? Potentially. And so it's it's going to be interesting. And, and I was just curious. A, are you going to, to wear a mask when you start returning mm -hmm. to airports? And B, do you think we're going to see more people wearing masks? Firstly, uh, my guess is airports will demand it, that you need to be wearing a mask. Mm. Yeah, You do? I know, well, I can tell you, okay. I, re I received an email from American Airlines maybe three weeks ago. Could be, could have been four weeks ago now, where they said for all flights, guests must wear a mask for the entirety of of the duration of the flight. Now, obviously, if you want to have a snack, okay. you want to have a meal, you know, you can take that off. But so sure. so that is one airline's rule, and I would imagine other airlines might have the same messaging already. And I would be incredibly surprised if airports weren't being proactive. Because it's in their best interest to make sure fewer people are getting sick because they want they need more people flying. So let's say they ha they put that rule into place, and then at some point they take that rule away and they allow people to make their own decisions whether they want to wear a mask or not. I will still likely wear a mask for a while. I'm going to be much like... You know the folks from Asia. You know it's 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 become part of their lives because 
they're dealing with yeah. these different annual flus and 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 it makes sense and we finally got a taste of what they've been dealing with year over year over year over year and at first it was really strange throwing a mask on and now it's it's just mm-hmm. I don't feel strange at all. Everyone else is wearing a mask. We're all kind of doing our part. Yeah. Like at first I was thinking, oh, I'm going to look like an idiot. Not that I really care. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I don't, yeah. 100%. I don't care too much what people think about me when they look at me. I mean, you, you're looking at my hair now. It's crazy, man. Um, but but when everybody's wearing that mask, you know, then then it's just everything just seems like, okay, yep, that's that's what we're meant to do. We're, we're doing the right thing. And I'll continue doing that exactly. until it makes sense not to. Yeah, I can imagine myself wearing a mask around the airport, giving our Asian brothers and sisters a wink or a thumbs up. Like, hey, I see what you're doing. I see what you've been about. I've been slow to the party, but here I am mm-hmm. now. And then and then I, I know you don't have an answer for this. This is just one of the things I've, I've been thinking about myself is, will our culture now start to take on masks in the same way? You know, will we still be wearing our masks three years, five years, ten years from now? Will it just become a way we live? Like, it cuts down on catching the common cold. It cuts down on catching the flu, right? It's, or passing it on, right? It's right. It, it might just be a good idea to wear a maybe. mask in general. And if the handshake goes, you know, maybe that'll be a great thing. If the handshake goes and we go to fist bumps or elbows, you're a hugger. Hugging's gone, buddy. That's no, it. It's, it's behind you now. No, it's not. No. Yep, no. hugging's over. You keep, yep, you just keep that for your wife and daughters. That's it. You're not taking that hug outside the house now. The next time you and I are in the same room, I'm going to squeeze the shit out of you. We're, get, we're getting our hugs on. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you've done that plenty of times without a hug being involved. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> <sighs> Tenuous pivot point, Joshua Hatton. Oh, right. Do it. Speaking of our Asian brothers and sisters. We had a conversation, I should more correctly say you had a conversation, mm-hmm. with our, our dear friend Chris Udi yes. about a Japanese whiskey, an in-depth dive into some Japanese whiskey talk. Correct. So we, had, we have had Chris on the podcast before. We have. Uh, right. That would have been in season three. And we, we touched on a few things, in, including Japanese whiskey. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were talking with him about distribution and we talked, uh, touched a bit on rice whiskeys and such. The idea for this conversation came from uh, a training I attended that Chris had mm-hmm. led with with me and the rest of the the, the team at Impacts Beverages. And what I enjoyed about the presentation wasn't that Chris focused on Fukano and Oishi, which are the two brands that Impacts import as far as rice whiskey goes, but it was a focus on the history of distilling in Japan, going mm. back to the 1400s and 1500s and discussing you know, the fact that Japan was a closed society for, for a period of a bit over 200 years. No one went in. No one went out. So while Japan was doing all sorts of distilling, usually with grain, and, and calling that what they called it at the time, you know, those in the UK were 
creating something called Uskaba, which became whiskey. So they both had rich distilling history and heritage, but because Japan was a close society, what they were producing early doors was never called whiskey. And that's because there was no travel, sure. right? And, and I found that point sure. to be so incredibly interesting. And, and he went on to talk about how some well-known distilleries, you know, well-known nowadays, started off much like your High Wests or your Smooth Amblers or your Whistle Pigs of the world where they would purchase distillate from other producers and create their own product around it until they started distilling their own. So, you know, that history dates back to the to the early 1900s. And he went into mm-hmm. detail on that. And so I said, you know what? The conversation that, that we've been having, this training that you gave was so interesting. Can we have that conversation on, on wax and, and, and have it for the podcast? He said, yeah, man, please, let's do it. And so what people are going to hear today is in a way the training that I received from Chris a couple of months back, but it was so interesting. I'd never heard so much of this before, and I, and I just thought it needed to be shared with our listeners. Uh, terrific. I do extend my apologies that I wasn't able to attend. You guys recorded this over the phone or over a FaceTime. Was there any video involved or were you just yeah, it, it, talking it, over the lines? It was over, over It was over a Zoom or a FaceTime, one of those. Okay, so so unfortunately the timing didn't work for me. It was in the early stages of the lockdown and we were figuring out a lot of things on the, the home side of things. And so this is now the second interview for Chris on One Nation Under Whiskey and I haven't been part of either of them. So I just wanted to send my apologies to Chris for that, he's, that fact. He's starting to, you know, feel I know, complex, right? right? <laughs> Rightly so. It looks terrible on the surface, uh, but I'm I'm excited. I haven't even listened to the raw audio here. Um, I'm going to be hearing this for the first time along with the listeners. And I, Chris is hugely knowledgeable in whiskey in general, but especially on the Japanese side of things. And so I'm intrigued to to hear what he has to say here. And so I'm I'm ready to listen. Are we ready to go there, Joshua? Oh, we're we're most definitely ready to go there. It it was around an hour or so, maybe a little little less than that. But I hope people enjoy it. They're they're getting to hear a bit of history that really hasn't been talked about. And and I tip my hat to Chris for having spent so many hours researching this history, actually going to Japan and searching up tax records to to help him in this research. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that and let's, let's hear what Chris has to say. We're talking today uh, with Chris Udy of Impex Beverages uh, about Japanese whiskey. And, and Chris, firstly, I want to I thank you again for coming back on the show. It was lovely having you before when we were in Isla drinking all the drinks and, and talking about all the whiskey. But it's really, really cool having you back. And, and it was our conversation just last, I, I don't know, man, time doesn't work anymore. So I'm going to assume it was last week where you took us through, you were talking about Japanese whiskey, but you were putting it in the context 
you were putting it in the context of history and the history of of distillation and where that started and how distillation migrated through through various countries. And there's some other stuff you touched on too, but I wonder if we could talk about that. I think I think the timing of it talks about why you know the word whiskey never made it into the Japanese vernacular until in much more modern times, but when whiskey was being produced in in the UK, that that name never traveled to Japan. So I'm hoping you can go through some history and maybe explain why that that word never set itself upon Japan when it set itself everywhere else. Sure. So if you look at the history of whiskey and how it travels, the first written record of whiskey dates to 1494, where the friar John Cor was ordered to make eight bowls of malt, which would have been the equivalent of 300 liters, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then you can trace it from immigrants leaving that area of the world and getting to other countries, and they're bringing the word whiskey with them. In Japan, it's, it's different in that you had an active grabbing of that of that type of whiskey, of that type of distillation when Takatsuru-san went over to Scotland to train. But what a lot of people don't really consider and, and what I think is should be considered is that distillation in Japan goes back 500 years before that. So wow. if you look at distillation and, and how it and how it begins, like you, you first hear about distillation in 4th century BC in Greece with Aristotle and it kind of branches out from there. Mm-hmm. And 7th century, you're in West Asia, 12th century, you get to Western Europe. But at the same time, it's also traveling east into China and, and circling around over there and okay. kind of um, marinating, so to speak. In the 9th century, it's Southeast Asia. The 11th century, you get, to, you, you get into China. And it, 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 again, it hangs out there. And then the mid-15th century, it makes it to Ryukyu, R-Y-U-K-Y-U, which is nowadays called Okinawa. But we don't consider that to be the first in Japan because back when it hits Ryukyu, it's um it's its own sovereign nation, so it's not part of Japan. Oh, so it, it hits Japan okay. for the first time. Yeah, in the early 16th century or the you know the early part of the 1500s, and the first written record that that I've had access to is distillation being is 1546, and I can't remember if it's called Okada or Oraka, but basically they were distilling what was the people's drink, and it was mm-hmm. happening down in Kyushu. Okay. Which is where Kumamoto is, Fukano and all those guys are, and Oisan are hanging out at. Yeah. So it, it gets into that area, and if you look at a map of Japan, it makes sense, right? Because Kumamoto is in the south. As it travels up through what is now Okinawa, it hits the southern part of Kyushu and um, Kagoshima, mm-hmm. and then also it comes from China into into Nagasaki, and that's kind of the birthplace of distillation in Japan. And it makes sense that they wouldn't call it whiskey because. If you've only if it's only fifty years before that you had the first written record of whiskey, and this is happening in fifteen forty six, yeah, they're, they're not trading. They're not they're, those ideas aren't cross pollinating, even though they're kind of doing some of the same stuff. Okay. And even in the seventeen, even in the fourteen hundreds, like whiskey wasn't aged back then, right? It was it was ushkaba. It was um yeah distillate with honey added to it and herbs and. It was maybe arguably closer to a liqueur or a gin than it was to a whiskey, but but that's that's the essence of whiskey, and and then they were doing their own thing, and that was what became known as shochu. And okay. and did, so, did shochu start off with with rice, or or did it? Because I know shochu could be made with barley and sweet potato, and you know. That's hard to say. Uh, like Ryukyu was probably distilling with a longer style of r- longer grain rice, or they could have even been using sugarcane. The south of of Kyushu's got a lot of 
it's got a lot of sugar cane as well on the islands, like the the Amami Islands that are hanging out around there. Mm-hmm. And um, so probably some cane distillate, probably some rice distillate. You know, you're growing a lot of rice. It's a staple. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're using koji at the time, so it would be able to ferment pretty easily. And, um, okay. But, but, but I don't know. But they... There is argument that the, the oldest shochu in Japan is kuma shochu or, or rice shochu because they've, they've found plaques dating from 1559 talking about rice shochu and how it's oh, okay. and how it's great. Like it was considered to be so good that they actually wrote it down on a plaque and then saved it in a temple to protect the plaque to, <laughs> I guess, protect the, the soul of it, if that makes sense. Interesting. So, um, okay. so you have this native Japanese spirit that is being made with grain, just like whiskey would be made with grain. It's sure. just they, the name isn't tr- translating over, right? Like, is it, think of if United States of farmers were making rye whiskey. You know, if the United States had been colonized by someone else and they were making whiskey from rye, maybe they won't be calling it whiskey like they do with rye. Maybe they'd have called it something else. But in essence, it's all the same, right? Yeah. Because in Scotland, they were using malt. In America, they would use rye, and then so on and so forth. And um, yeah. that kind of takes you up, and, and, and it makes sense that it happens this way, and it makes sense that you don't really start to hear about whiskey in Japan until like 1870, because Japan's a closed nation. There is no, all the way up until, let me think, all the way up until 1853, I think, they, they were only trading with, they only were trading through a port outside of Nagasaki with the Dutch. And the Dutch were trading in like spices and deer pelts and taking out silk and whatnot huh. and, and rice. And and that was a trade. It was all isolated to one area. And it's not until 1853 that Commodore Perry came in from the United States demanding that they open up the um, trade to other countries. It was, uh, Japan just didn't want anything to do with other people. And wow, you know, it's, they were a pretty ethnocentric culture at the time. So, there, so there was, aside from the Netherlands, there was no import, no export. It was just a, a self-sufficient country that wanted to do its own thing. They would do trade, but it was all isolated to... There might have been another port on Honshu, but most of it was isolated to, um, to outside of Nagasaki. Okay. And that's, that's where they brought in the foreign goods. Okay. So, so that actually made them technologically a little bit behind the times, right? That's mm-hmm. how the United States was able to open up trade as, as Commodore Perry went in there with his ships and guns and everything and said, hey, we want to trade with you guys. And they said, get out of here. But he brought whiskey with him at the time, and that's, that's, that's important. He brought American whiskey with him oh, right. at the time. And keep in mind, like American whiskey at the time would also have random stuff added to it, right? This is way pre-prohibition, so you, uh, okay. you it might be some barrel-aged stuff, might have, be some stuff with some with other things added to it, but he would have brought some with him as gifts. Sure. And they said, come back in a year, and then he comes back like less than a year later and, and brings more whiskey and gives it out. Now that, that I need to give credit to Stefan Van Eck and, and Whiskey Rising. That's I took that from his book, which is a great book. Like okay. That dude, he knows a lot about a lot of things. He's definitely got his opinion on what things should be, but but, but, but that is a great book, and I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to kind of read a little bit more about history. But um, of, of, like, America and whiskey and Japan, because he kind of starts his book there. And so, you know, it's in the 1870s, and this is why when you look in, like, Wikipedia, it says whiskey in Japan kind of starts in 1870. Well, yeah. what's going on at this point is trade is kicking up and whiskey's coming in, but you also have manufacturers in Japan who are blending what they think 
whiskey will taste like. They don't, they're not actually making a whiskey. They're just taking shochu or some other distillate, adding some herbs and adding some color to it and approximating what a whiskey is and selling it as whiskey. And what year and, um, is this? This is like 1871, okay. I think, is the okay. when, when there was a guy who kind of dialed it in to do it. So um, it, it, obviously they were very good at it, and it sparks interest, and then that's how it carries over into where, you know, 1918, Taketsu Sun goes over to Scotland to learn Scottish-style whiskey and brings that, and him and Tori Sun open up Yamazaki like 1923, 1924, and they start making a Scottish-style whiskey in Japan, mm-hmm. which is what then becomes known as Japanese whiskey. So it's like parallels almost, because you were they were already making in Japan, they were already making distillate from grain and, and using that. And mm. it's just more of like him adopting the word because he was adopting the technology all the way through. Oh, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But if you... Sp- Speed that up, like if you really speed that up and accelerate it to current day, you can go to a place like Fuji Gotemba, which will have a doubler on it. So it's making like bourbon style, right? Oh, wow. And okay. you can, yeah, yeah. And while and while guys like Chichibu are still seem very true to that Scottish style, even so far as bringing in Forsyth stills, the Japanese whiskey or, or whiskey distillation in Japan has really kind of expanded out beyond that. And I would argue that the history and the, the culture of Japanese whiskey has never been the provenance of the distillate and where it was made, but rather in the blending techniques. And mm. my argument for this is based in tax records. So even to today, you don't have, like, there's no, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Is it okay to just go down a rabbit hole? No. It, so, so first off, I, I know the rabbit hole you're about to go down and I, and I want to go there. But before we get there, I thought you made a really interesting parallel. You know, you, me, all the other people on the Impex team are out there selling Oishi whiskey, selling Fukano whiskey, and and occasionally the conversation gets to, well, that's whiskey from rice, isn't isn't that just shochu that hasn't been diluted, and yeah. and you can in a way you you can answer yes, but but the what really intrigued me. Was the, was this historical content the fact that it was a, a, a closed off country where the word whiskey would would never even get there yet they still could, you know at the same t- almost at the same time were producing a spirit to drink from grain they just had different words that that oh, is yeah. cool in and of itself and then you made this really cool or interesting comparison to producing whiskey in the U.S. You know, part of me wonders if in the 17, 1800s, when we're starting to distill rye over here, and maybe it started sooner than that, I, um, that I don't know, but, you know, it makes you wonder if people over in Scotland were saying, well, that's not real whiskey. You got to make it out of barley. You know, you got to, you know, something like that. So it, so it almost sounds as if History, in a way, is is repeating itself. Yeah, well, history's politics and history is the definition of everything in booze, right? Like, the only reason why Scotch whiskey is a minimum of three years old is because that is law. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the parallels and them doing it at the same time, it is what it is. Now, they weren't putting stuff in the barrel until 1960s, 1970s, okay. granted. Okay. But, but 
you know, they were making it still spirit from grain. Yeah. And, and that's kind of was what it was. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, but you know what? E- even in the U.S., we can call a wi- we can call an unaged spirit a whiskey if we wanted to. Yeah, you just yeah, call yeah. It white whiskey, uh, right? That's right. And, and we're pretty open with it. And it's important to note as well. Like, I don't try to talk about Oishi and Fukano as Japanese whiskeys. Like, I, I think that uh, I, they're not right. They're they're whiskeys from Japan. Mm-hmm. So. You know, whiskey in Japan is, is not defined on any level. It's defined by a tax law and a license. Yeah. And that's what it is. But if you look at what the essence of whiskey is supposed to be, if you look at it from, from an enthusiast standpoint and you say, okay, whiskey is a distilled spirit made from grain and aged in an oak cask. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, if you then tend to narrow it down to say, okay, we're going to try to we're going to try to make sure that whiskey maintains a certain standard and the fact that it's, it needs to be good distillate then you can, it opens you up to, while maintaining a level of quality, really expand the pie, right? Like bring new flavors in. Mm. If you limit it to like only being made from barley or only being made from corn, then, then, then you're kind of, you're shooting yourself in the foot, I think. And so just, just, just let it grow. Let it become whatever it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I lost my train of thought there a little bit. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's good. But you know, it, it, it's fine. It, but it got me to thinking about Koval and you know when they first started they said you know what let's focus on millet let's focus on spelt let's focus on all these different grains to show you the different flavors that can come out of this grain or that grain and and all of them are deemed whiskey because that is in fact what it is spirit from grain matured in a cask at 40 percent and above and that is you know sort of increasing that pie as you as you talk about it and whether people like it or not is another thing, right? <laughs> but 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 I think if we start to put a governor on on innovation, uh, or put more governors on on innovation, then you're not increasing the pie. Then you're just dealing with the same flavors over and over again, uh, and not coming out with new stuff. Or what you have happening is even more scary, in that you have a homogenization of the industry into a few big players. And those few big players start to do what they can to streamline the process, and then you lose a little bit of, of what you can possibly have for, mm. for like you said, for innovation, but also in, as far as things just naturally change when you, when you kind of start to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like in bourbon, let's just use bourbon, right? People talk about, and I'm no chemist, so I have no idea if it makes a difference, but you have people talk about old bourbons and old oak, old oak growth versus yeah. other bourbons and, you know, forcing the oak to grow quicker. Or you have people talk about different types of grains and, and using um, fertilizers on grains versus using, fer- versus using grains that maybe turn out less yield per acre, but more flavor. I mean, who knows, right? It's all a bunch of variables, but if you don't when you start to put regulations in place, when you start to put barriers to entry, it becomes harder for people to participate. And when that happens, you definitely have a constriction of what you can possibly accomplish. Right. Because altruism's bullshit. Like there's no... Agreed. Uh, yes. Yes. So people like Koval need to be able to exist so that they can explore what is out there. Because let's face it, Jim Beam wasn't going to do a millet bourbon. No. There. But Jim Beam did do a rice bourbon. And, and Buffalo Trace has their whole experimental cask stuff. Yeah. They worked with rice before, which I thought was kind of interesting. 
So you started going down this rabbit hole of of what what is whiskey in Japan and and, and how does one define whiskey in Japan? Could you get into that? Because you, you you approach it from a very different perspective. You you approach it from tax records. <laughs> yeah. So again, you know. Whiskey Rising, Stefan's book was great about putting all this into one spot so people can can see it kind of play out. But um, you, like, the, my, again, my argument is the history of Japanese whiskey is 100% in the blending. Mm-hmm. And even today, because it's defined by a tax law and a license, there is no, there is no definition of whiskey in Japan. It's, it's just a matter of if you have a license to sell it, and if you do, then you only have to adhere to a few things. But, but, you know, to give an example, like the first law for the Japan first starts taxing alcohol um, in 1940. Then okay. in 43, they revised the tax law and they, they established different categories of whiskey, third grade, second grade and first grade whiskey. And if you look at what the mix ratios are, like the amount of whiskey that actually has to be in in a bottle of whiskey, the third grade, which is by far and away the most popular tier of whiskey, mm-hmm. the cheaper tier, Zero to less than five percent. Okay, if that's the case, and we're looking, we're talking about the nineteen forties here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from zero to five percent of whiskey in a bottle that says whiskey. What else is in that bottle if if not whiskey? Shochu. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there's a kind of a precedent allowing shochu to be qualified as a whiskey if they're throwing in whiskey bottles. You could do neutral grain spirit. Mm-hmm. My my understanding is you could do anything you wanted, you any type of any type of ethanol that you could produce uh, on a cheap level. You you were allowed to just throw it in there, so it could have been from cane, from anything, and that that continues all the way up. So it's not until 1968 that the law changes to where that third grade actually has to have a minimum of seven percent, and then it only goes up to less than thirteen percent actual whiskey in the bottle. And that still for remains. that cheap tier. But it but the cheap slash the biggest volume tier. Yeah, 78, it goes to uh, 10 to less than 17% for the third tier. And then like, but, but there was always a first grade whiskey that you could have 30% or more. So I'm not trying to say they were oh, forced to add okay. other stuff to it. I'm just saying between the tiers and between the definition of whiskey and the, hist- the, the accurate history of whiskey in Japan... Okay. Is that you? You were allowed to have whiskey bottles with no whiskey in them whatsoever, all the way up to sixty-eight, mm-hmm. and then post sixty-eight, you're allowed to blend with whatever you want. And so, you know, here again, if you expand that out on a global level, you know, in Canada, I think you're allowed to add up to nine point zero nine percent of whatever you want to a bottle of whiskey and still call it whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. So like, there, there's there's arguments to be made that you know. Whiskey doesn't necessarily need to be 100% whiskey. It's never needed to be that. And even above and beyond it, as far as it relates to Japan specifically, their history has always been in blending. Okay. And the people that were good at blending survived. And the people that were not good at blending did not survive. So, so there, I think there's some really good examples and, and probably some big name examples of, of those that have gotten up you know, a whiskey making slash distilling license before they they even started distilling themselves, kind of like what High West did in the U.S., right? You know, blending amazing stuff, coming out with just delicious whiskey, 
Meanwhile, they got their stills. They started making their own stuff. Then they got even bigger stills and making even more stuff. So what, are, are you able to, to touch on some of that? And, and so I think their history isn't too far from what we see modern bourbon producers doing. Yeah, so, so you know, Yamazaki was the first whiskey distillery built in Japan in 23, 24. Mm-hmm. But the first whiskey license actually issued in Japan dates back to 1919. And um, the company that got that license didn't build their first set of stills until the 1960s. Yeah. So, so there was a, several decades of those guys just kind of sourcing stuff and putting it together and selling it, and, and, which is great, right? Because um, why not? Like, why not? Why, th- think about, you know, you mentioned High West. Think about what High West really did for the American whiskey market. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of that Canadian whiskey that he was bottling was, was not really set to, to do anything. And he, he, he understood the beauty of it and, and put that label on it and really kind of kick-started a competition that, that raised the level of what was being released by folks. Mm-hmm. Or it, it raised awareness for sure, and then it raised the level of what was being released so that people could compete with them. Yeah. And so much so that it actually almost backfired and it put so much pressure on that category of distillate to where, I don't know if you remember, but rye kind of was getting really hard to get for a while. It started disappearing. Yes. Yep. And um, that had to do with classic cocktails as well. But it, it's, so I think it's a good thing. I think when you, you know, you let people, the market will reply, let people kind of go and, and have fun with it and, and see what you can develop. Mm-hmm. So those companies that had gotten distillery licenses but haven't built distilleries for sometimes decades, did they, I mean, and you may not know this, and, and if you don't know this, please please say, you know what, I, I don't know or I, I can't talk to that, but do you, what, was it their intent to become distillers? Did, was that even a thing? Did it matter, or, or was a license needed just to even play with, with distilled spirit? Well, I mean, you needed a license, right? Like when they, when they put the license law in, then you, you definitely had to have licenses, but as far as what their intent was, there's no way I'd be able to speak to it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't presume to. Okay. okay. I, you know, I like to think that each one of them wanted to kind of put their mark on what was going on, and they saw an opportunity and wanted to capitalize on it and innovate on it, which is what a lot of them did, which is great. So there are a lot of Japanese whiskey producers who are are making various bottles. Uh, of pure malt whiskey, and and like you, you know, anytime I talk about Japanese pure malt, I actually compare it to Compass Box. So you, you like Compass Box whiskeys? That's fantastic. They're pulling whiskey from here, there, and everywhere. They're even, you know, mixing Calvados now to produce, you know, a type of spirit. You know, it gets back to that to that art of blending, and I would say that that many of the producers that are producing pure malt are doing so very successfully. Uh, they're selling a lot of bottles. Um, they're a successful product. However, Matsui, who produced Kuriyoshi, were doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. They only started doing it more recently, while others have been doing it for decades. Seems to be getting flack for, for a practice that has been in play for... 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years. And I'm curious, uh, you know, is this just some weird, you know, someone's got to be the whipping boy? Like, what do you, 
<laughs> what do you think that is, man? I don't know, man. Everyone's got to hate on something, don't they? Let me throw this in there. You, you use the example of the distillery, of the company that got their distilling license in 1919, and they didn't build the distillery until when? Six, 1960s, yeah. The 1960s. So here we have the history of Japanese whiskey by tax by using these tax records here that you have um, where a company all the way back to 1919 got a license so that they can start blending stuff putting it in a bottle and calling it a whiskey and then in the 60s they started distilling the product is probably really good they probably make made delicious stuff but here they are doing it 101 years ago and and here we are today <laughs> And now someone, 101 years later, is, 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 is I would say, is probably doing it uh, a bit more differently because they're using only whiskey. You know, they're getting the flack that, you know, for years people didn't care. And I just don't know if it's like now people have the internet. Now people want to know things. In my career, I've noticed that people tend to find things more delicious the more they know about them. And that's so it's like you're... Hmm. People kind of want to feel a part of something. They kind of want to feel like they can pin it down and, and pigeonhole it, and and that's cool. But but here's the way that I like to think about it: is companies that are coming on board and the people that are doing the pure malts, and you know, and they're they're buying from other Japanese companies, and the provenance isn't necessarily tracked because it's never had to been. And but the Japanese government, like, it's, it's pretty clear, right? The Japanese government considers it to be a Japanese product. The certificates of origin say product of Japan on mm. them. Yeah. The history is all the way there. And what's also happening is you're seeing these you're seeing companies come in and reinvest the revenue from that into raising new facilities by which they can expand what people are kind of grilling on them for not necessarily having, right? So like Matsui's one where they've they've bought a 5,000 liter Japanese made pot still and a 3,000 liter Japanese made spirit still and they were distilling out a thousand liter Portuguese stills before that. Okay. So they're, they're, they, they've brought some of that in. They've, they've invested in contracting with a local farmer to do locally grown barley so that they can do a, a terroir specific single malt for their distillery. Wow. Last time I was there, they had put in a little bit of a little kiln so they could actually malt barley with Japanese peat. Because, um, you know, peat grows in, in Hokkaido and it also grows in Akita. Yeah. And so, so it's historically accurate. It's, the juice is good. The juice is really good. It's winning a bunch of awards. And, and when, you, when you drink it, it's quite enjoyable. So, you know, I don't know why people have to hate on things. Like a lot of people don't like LeBron James. He's one of the best basketball players in the history of basketball. Mm. A lot of people just hate on him. It's like, come on, man, just just enjoy the sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I That's wonder if it's my take on it. You know, I, I I think sometimes people like to be contrarians. You know, just like That's exactly it. They want. I mean, sometimes people just need drama. Yeah. And they're going to find a way to get some drama in it. And that, that's good. Like everyone's, a, you know, whiskey is a very personal thing. It's a very personal thing for me. It's a very personal thing for you. You and I do not agree about a certain area of a certain distillery, like a, a few decades there where you absolutely love it. And I think it's absolutely <laughs> trash. Like there's a very, you know, and both of us will look at each other like we're crazy because of it. And, and the fact that that expands out is one of the coolest things of whiskey is that everyone does get so emotionally attached to it. Yes. So they can, they're, they're allowed to, they're allowed, they're totally allowed to be that way. I can't fault anyone for, for not liking um, a producer or a whiskey, 
But at the same time, I would just say, you know, that's cool. Don't drink it. You go drink something else. But. <laughs> yeah, but you bring up a good point that that what they're do what Matsui is doing is historically accurate to what everybody else was doing, and and if we just make that comparison, even to you know the likes of Whistlepig, where you know, geez, at the beginning, you know, they got into a bit of heat because of the whole claim about Vermont. That's all changed, yeah. thankfully, but you know they. They're now loud and proud about, yep, we source from Canada, we source from Indiana. We're also now making our own stuff. Like, I, I, think, I think there are some really good parallels to be made with, with people like Matsui or people like Mars, who I, I think, Mar, didn't Mars just recently reopen a distillery or something like that? Mars has um, Sanuki down in... Kagoshima, they opened one up a few years ago. They've got several distilleries. Yeah. So, you know, this is, I, I just, I think that there's correlations to be made between the, the growth of American spirits and, and the continual growth uh, of Japanese spirits. Question for you. Mm-hmm. What's got you excited about Japanese whiskey right now? You just take a look at the category as a whole. And it was such an unappreciated category for so long. Mm-hmm. And there was so much good juice that everyone kind of woke up to and completely depleted. And now it's in the hands of millionaires and billionaires. But, but that excitement provided a market for people to kind of come in. And what's exciting for me for Japanese whiskey is, or again, I want to say whiskey's from Japan because uh, the Japanese whiskey category is so wide and open. They, they're going to establish it for being what it is, but I hope that it doesn't force the people that are doing whiskeys from Japan out. But um, when you look at the new players that are coming on, like you have yeah. a bunch of new distilleries who are coming on board, and they're going to have their own take on things. Yeah, they have. They don't necessarily do it the old Scotch whiskey way or the or the doubler way. They might have some hybrid stills going on. You take a look at distilleries that are popping up in different areas of Japan where the where the climate is different, and, yeah, and the different type of cask aging that they're going to do. And then, like, you know, obviously because we sell it, but I, I love Oisan's whiskey and, and Fukano-san's whiskey a whole bunch. They're family friends, but Oisan is, you know, he's bought Banyuls casks, Madeira casks, wow. uh, Muscatel casks, Sakura casks, which are locally grown trees like down the street from the distillery, the Mizanara cask. He's always done sherry and brandy. Mm-hmm. He's got um, port cask, Isla cask. I mean, he's Dabble in Newark, but he, he's just expanding out. I mean, 75-year-old sherry cast, like held wow. sherry for 75 years, and he's filled him up with, with oishi to, to, to see how it's going to adjust. And because that rice distillate's so soft to begin with, mm. it's heavily malleable by the cast. So that, that's exciting. These are all new flavors. And for me, that's, that's, that's where it goes. You know, I, I probably drank my first bourbon when I was five, six years old. <laughs> and, it, you know, of course... It didn't agree with me at that time, and it was more of a punishment than it was a joy. But you know, I still love bourbon, and I still love scotch, and and they're great. And it, and see an expansion out of there is, is great. Like to watch, like Chichibu make a scotch style single malt, mm-hmm. like a, a Japanese whiskey that is a scotch style single malt, and to see them execute it so well, yeah. it's it's great because it's just there's just more to have and more to offer, and and there's a downside to that as well because like with these freedoms you have. You definitely have a few brands that have hit the shelves where I've tried those and I'm, I don't necessarily, like they're not for me is the way to put it, right? Like they're for somebody else, not for me. Mm. And, um, 
and that's but that's part of it you, you got to have all of them you can't just have it one way so yeah you know you brought up a really good point about these you know 75 year old sherry casks that uh, that oishi has now rice spirit is soft it's incredibly malleable but it's it's just it's just so delicate and and i'm curious like do you think with a rice-based distillate are there any casks that would just you know just tear that spirit apart like it like it like it wouldn't work you know you could argue that the isla whiskey tears the spirit apart okay because when you put it in an isla cask and you let it sit for you you pull it out like it's you pour it for some folks and they, they think it's Isla whiskey, right? Like yeah. the, you maintain that, that, that umami and you maintain the, uh, the soft marshmallow texture of the rice distillate, but the, but the Isla almost becomes the, the overbearing force. Mm. And with the Fucano, like the 14 year Fucano single casks we did, there's so much oak on those that it's, it's like a punch in the face. And, yeah. and some people might not like that, but you know, some people that's, that's their jam. So they're really digging it. So to say that it absolutely tears it apart is, it's tough to say. I would just think that um, it is going to be a wide, a very big Skittles of flavor. Like you've got every color of the rainbow there, and some of those colors are very, very bright. And so it's uh, so you just kind of have to take it in stride and enjoy it as it is. What I think it can lead to, which I think is the most exciting spot from like from a, a business standpoint, of course, is that because it is so heavily malleable and because it's distilled in a way mm-hmm. to where it's meant to be consumed, like, you know, the stuff they, dis- they, they distill to go into the barrel is the same stuff that they distilled to be consumed immediately. Okay. So the process is one that leads to a, like a, a softer, easy drinking spirit out of the gate is it means that, you know, with the lower ABVs that it's going into the barrel where it's dissolving out more sugars and less of the wood tannins, you're going to be able to turn stuff around in a quicker period of time. So while we're fortunate in that Oisan has stockpiled a whole, because that history is all there, right? So mm-hmm. they've been putting stuff in the barrel since the 70s. They've got stuff that's from the 70s. And so we have a, a massive amount of older casks. It may be one day there will be a way to, like should demand ever outweigh the supply of those older casks, we'll be able to bring in some younger casks and, and work with those as well. But I think that that, I don't think you can necessarily do that with um, a refill cask so much as you'd have to get in like a new oak program or maybe a program that's got a, like a, a really heavy, okay. wa- like fortified wine influence on it to where, to where it kind of mixes it up quicker, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with Scotch whiskey, right? Like a refill cask and Scotch whiskey, you need a little bit of extra time sometimes to like to, for the for the spirit part of it to kind of calm down and integrate more of the oak, it takes a lot more time than it does on a decharred recharred cask or something that's been rejuvenated. Sure. Okay. So decharred recharred cask, STR casks, and rice rice distillate might be incredible. There's they're not out there yet though. Oh, okay, that was that was. Gonna but the second they hit, I can promise you, the second they hit, Oyson's going to buy some. <laughs> oh man, that's that's great. I, I love how much experimentation that that he's willing to do. You know, when the line first came out, it, it was it was brandy and it was sherry. And that's, a, that's that's what they had done since the seventies. Right? <laughs> so that's what was there. That's absolutely yeah. wild. Um, the the last thing that I had, seeing as we're we're, you know, we've we've transitioned from distilling history into the history of what is Japanese whiskey, and now we're we're working on 
you know, specifically talking about rice-based distillate. I want to say it was a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, we had gotten a question from uh, a friend, a longtime listener, this guy, Matt, a.k.a. Skinny Roberts, and he'd reached out to us some way, I forget which way. He said, do you know of any distilleries that are using vacuum distillation? And I said, first off, I don't even know what that is. And secondly, I can't think of a single distillery. And then and it must have been like on Facebook or something like that, because you shot me a text and you said, you know, that's, that's what Oisan's using uh, to produce his spirit. <laughs> and um, I've heard of vacuum distillation, but I don't understand how it works and why you'd want to use that over, say, column, you know, continuous distillation through a coffee still or, or like a pot still or some sort of a hybrid like that. Like, what is, what is vacuum distillation and, and what is it doing to a rice distillate? Again, I have to back it up just a little bit to kind of give you the, 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 the fundamental differences between the style of production that Oisan is doing versus what some other whiskey producers are doing. In general, whiskey production, if you look at it historically, they use whatever yeast they can to get the ABV up as high as they can, whatever grain produces the most sugar per, per, per acreage. And they're looking to the end thing. They're looking to the distillate and mm -hmm. how to get there. Now, that's changed over the last 10, 15 years. But that's what the production side of it always was. Because on the shochu side of things, they were always looking to be able to drink it as new make. Then you were then the the forces on the innovation were how do you get a cleaner, softer spirit? Mm. And when you do a vacuum pressure distillation, you end up with like a more it's a more floral, more aromatic spirit. It's, it's more it's more akin to like perfume distillation, if you will. So the way it works, and it's important to realize the two of them because had people, like had there been a big boom of clear whiskey in the 1980s in America, then some of that technology might have made its way over here because it makes for a softer spirit. So Oisan will do two. He'll do regular pressure and reduced pressure. Okay. And the reduced pressure works in a closed system. So they have the pot still and they'll, they have a pump to it and it, it vacuums out the inside to reduce the pressure on the inside of the still. And what that does is it it reduces the vaporization point of ethanol by almost a half, I think. Oh. So you don't have to heat up the still as hot to get the ethanol molecules to turn into a gas okay. to get up out of the still and then be recondensed back down into a liquid later. Oh, that that, yeah, that, that makes complete sense. So you would, un, you know, all you have to do is just think about what you do in the kitchen to understand what that would do to something. Like if you're going to cook a food, depending on how the, how the, the heat that you're using, it could affect the flavors and, and all this stuff. So it would make sense that uh, a lower boil uh, with, with less pressure in the still would affect the flavor of that ethanol as it, as it's, as it's coming out. That's amazing. And think about like, put it back to Scott's whiskey, right? And you have the old guys who are like, no, direct fire stills are the best because it was literally charring some of the malt on the bottom. And then yeah. people are like, no, steam coils are fine. It's just two different, it's just different things that expand the pie. Um, wow. Yeah. So he does like the reduced pressure stuff is more, when you taste, I'll have to bring some to you next time I'm out your way, but when you taste the, the, you can taste them separately. We, we, the stuff that we sell, the, um, it's sometimes a combination of the two, sometimes just reduced. We, we, don't, we don't kind of disclose that. But 
when you taste the regular pressure stuff, it is more of that classy, classic whiskey, a little bit more aggressive style. It's got a little bit more of bolder flavors, and the reduced pressure stuff tends to be that lighter style. And you know, people tend to gravitate towards one or the other, but that's again a personal preference thing. Okay. Oh, that's very cool. Thank you. I'm going to leave you with with this last and final question. I I asked you what has you excited about Japanese whiskey, but let let's pretend now. Let's pretend that we are in a post COVID nineteen world, and everything is one hundred percent back to normal. So it's basically the year um, twenty three forty two. What do you? What has you most excited about about the world of whiskey? About the world of whiskey, I think that awareness is is good. Awareness leads like people who are inquisitive and want to know more leads to more experimentation and people not being laissez-faire about what they're consuming. And so, while it's kind of a pain in the ass when people start to hate on things because they tend to look at it through a very narrow, you know periscope and say it's got to be this way and it just drives me bananas the fact that they want to know and the fact that they like are again emotionally invested into it's great and i think that that's only going to continue to to happen and so you're going to have these different sharks and jets where people are going to love this and people are going to love that Hmm. and what's exciting about it is it's going to always allow for something new and something cool to come in so what has me excited is the, the growth of whiskey, of whiskey being distilled on a global scale. Like, I, I've always been a huge fan of Cavallon. Uh, you know, the very perverse sherry cask is right up my alley. I'm a huge fan of Pandaren. I'm a huge fan of Amroot. The, the milk and honey guys, it's going to be fun to see what they do. So, so whiskey on a global scale, the experimentation with different grains, which is going to happen as people are paying more attention to yeast and as people are paying more attention to fermentation times and, yeah. and mashing times like Gout and Carolus, you know, you and I had a discussion about them where um, they like they sparge at a different temperature. They sparge like a brewer. And historically, when you go to do your mash, you just put a lot of hot water to it and you suck out the sugars yeah. that way. Well, when you're making a beer, you don't do that because it, it gives the wrong flavor off the grain. And distilleries are starting yep. to incorporate that in. And so all of these different variants and the details and almost the exact opposite of homogenation of the industry is going to bring all these new flavors. And that's what's got me excited because... If, if you don't always have something new and changing, it's going to be what it is. And then also, I will kind of want to tell you one thing that has me worried or excited at the same time. And that's, okay. I've noticed that with people who are younger than me coming into the whiskey community, they're coming at it with a different set of eyes. You know, Elijah, who loves very citric, sour whiskeys, and, and that's what he fell into love with whiskey with, whereas I fell into love with very... You know, like over oaked, older, perverse sherry cask whiskeys, and he likes the more spirit driven yeah. stuff. And seeing that shift to where that's the palette that is now, that is now kind of dominant, it's it worries me because if distillers catered to that, then old man Udi ain't going to be able to get as many uh, old school style whiskeys. <laughs> but it also makes me excited because maybe everyone's going to be going after those bottles, and the the old man Udi style bottles will come up easier and on secondary, so I can get those at a discount price. <laughs> <laughs> so 2042 it should come full circle right I'll be 90 I should be able to afford a couple expensive bottles and they should be cheap because Elijah and all those boys yeah. are going to be buying they're going to be in the prime of their career so they're going to be buying all these <laughs> citric forward whiskeys it's funny I, I, I feel like I live in both worlds you know there's 
so often I say, not necessarily want younger stuff, but I want I want to taste that spirit, right? I want I want to taste the distillery. I don't necessarily want to taste the the shit that was in the cask before that. Mm. But then I get those real cherry old sherry casks, and I say, you know what? This is the best thing I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be good. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Oh, were you gonna say something? No, I was just kind of thinking as well. Like I, I can't imagine like South America and Mexico won't be too far behind on making whiskey. And if we're talking twenty forty two, they're probably gonna have some badass juice by then too. That's a really good point. Like South America, Central America, like there's there's really no true whiskey production there. So so we have an opportunity for some innovation coming out of there. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. I know how, you, how busy you are. <laughs> We're all busy right now with all these Zoom meetings. My goodness. Uh, <laughs> thank you, sir. And, um, you know, as always, since, since Jason's not on the, on the call, tell him hello and that I hope he's doing well. I will and do. you guys, I will do. stay out of trouble or get into some trouble. Just stay away from public places until all this shit blows over. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, he's got it. He's got it. Yeah, see, there it is. Damn. Chris Udy, thanks again so much for hopping on to yet another episode of One Nation Under Whiskey. Uh, going back, listen, re-listening to the audio, editing out my various ums and ahs, at least as many as I could. I tell you, it was a joy going back to and just relearning from him well he's a fount of knowledge on japanese whiskey he, he, he knows his whiskeys inside out and back to front but especially listening to him on japanese whiskey is such a joy such a pleasure and what kind of timing are we talking about this episode going out just as last week we saw the new york times article mm-hmm. on japanese whiskeys it's yeah. it's a conversation that people are having want to have and I, I don't think you can do better than listening to Chris Udi on Japanese whiskeys. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that article. Um, for those that have followed Japanese whiskey, I'm not sure it sheds much light onto what yeah. what many people already know. However, I think what Chris has done is he's he's taken that information and he's putting it into uh, some much better historical context that, that really helps explain the category in, in a smart and concise way. Well, and, and even if a lot of people who have been paying attention know most of what's in the article, you're still looking at something that's now being discussed in the New York Times. Like right? that's, a, yeah. <laughs> that's a high watermark for Japanese whiskey and, and especially, you know, the kind of the debunking of myths around mm. Japanese whiskey, around mm. the category, the fact that that's going out to a lay audience is fantastic. Yep. Absolutely terrific. Yep. Yeah, agreed. Listen, uh, I want to get us moving along a little bit, and I thought yes, it would be good if we woke our paper boy to discuss this week's news. So we've had a very busy month of May true, and true. end of April. Mm-hmm. 
we we sold out our Aaron single cask in five minutes. Yep. We sold out our milk and honey single cask in six minutes. Two-year-old whiskey sold in six minutes. Amazing. Go on. We launched our Angostura rum, which is the first rum we've released to the online nation. Correct. And it had the audacity to take a weekend to sell out. I like it when our bottlings have audacity now and again. That means we're not dealing with upset customers. I put the bottle in my shopping cart, you know, left my shopping cart. You know, it's, it, we're doing very well business-wise and it's, and it's cause for celebration. It's taken us 10 years to get to where we are now, but knowing there are almost 10 years, almost 10 years. But knowing that there are people who can miss out if they wait seven minutes rather than six to get their bottles, it's, I understand, I appreciate the, um, support? uh, No, what's the word I'm thinking of? I have it. Frustration. I appreciate I appreciate the frustration. But but <laughs> with that with all of that said, like you had said, the rum took about a weekend that sold out. And well, our next But yeah. be- before yeah, we okay. before we go on to the next, yeah. you and I were saying internally, even in the first maybe ten minutes, mm-hmm. two thirds of of that hogshead salt. Yeah, that's That was true. about 200 bottles of this rum went in the first 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And and you and I were kind of watching it thinking, is this a repeat of what we've been seeing with the single malts? And then it started to slow and you and I breathed a little sigh of relief when it was still available after 30 minutes. Yeah. And then an hour and, and we even joked internally, you know, wow, somebody bought a bottle of rum at one o'clock on a Thursday afternoon when, <laughs> you know, what have you learned from the milk and honey and the Aaron and, and previous releases before that? One o'clock, you're dead in the water. You've no, missed it by a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then we saw Friday night purchases and Saturday morning purchases and types of purchases we haven't seen in a long, long time. Do you know what made that possible? It was... Yeah, uh-huh. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, it, it was our nation members. We The number of people who have emailed us or posted in our private Facebook group saying, you know what, I got one bottle this way we're able to share more with the nation members. Absolutely. How great is that? The fact that we've got strangers giving a crap about other strangers, but the connective tissue is they're members of single cast nation. So they're 100%. looking out for one another. I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. Yeah, those those messages were absolutely wonderful uh, and so welcome. Yeah. And so yeah, thanks thanks to the nation for being the nation. What a nation we've surrounded ourselves with and built over these almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. But as you were beginning to allude to, that's in the past. That's in the rearview mirror. This is going live June 3rd. And boy, do we have some news for June 4. So June 4, we will be selling the largest single cask we've we've ever released, at least for our online members, right? That is Um, accurate. So it is a 10-year-old blended malt 
in a mm-hmm. first fill sherry butt with a wonderfully high ABV of 64.8% alcohol that I drink, Indeed. that I think drinks much lower than, than what it is, but also takes to a couple drops of water here and there if you want to play with that. Yeah, and that was, we posted this, we shared this with our May 20 and May 27 Nation Zoom tasters. Mm-hmm. And it really, it really surprised people. So some were remembering the blended malt 12-year-old that yes. was released. Yep, yep, yep. And how much they enjoyed that. And I remember back in the day when we released that, that took two hours to sell out. Yeah. And, and it was interesting because after it started selling out and started appearing on people's doorsteps and they started tasting it, there were a lot of people who started to get wind that something delicious had happened. That they missed and out they on. they had missed out on it. <laughs> uh-huh. And, so, yeah. but, and I, I just want to make a quick point about the, the blended malt 10-year-old. When you and I selected it and you and I wrote the tasting notes for it, we didn't say very much about the little hint of peat that that creeps around the edge Correct. and is present in the nose and then, then present on the palate. And even at the May 20 tasting, there weren't a lot of people talking about the peated component in this. Mm-hmm. However, at the May 27 tasting, lo, the peat appeared. <laughs> and, and I was talking about it as fresh hospital bed linen, and and good good supporter of the nation, Uzel Villanueva, was talking about it as fresh medical gauze. And it's it's a very different kind of peat. Mm. And it would come from a highland peated expression that is potentially within this blended well, malt. Right, yeah. So these the one thing that we know is that the the malts in this blended malt are from the Edrington-owned distilleries, which were, at the time of distillation, Highland Park, McAllen, Glen Turret. Uh, there may have been some Tam Dew in there. There may have been some Glen Rothis in there. Tough to tell. Um, and we know, of course, Highland Park can be smoky. And we know that Glintura occasionally does peated malt. So where the peat came from, we don't know. But it is subtle. Once you find it, it's one of those nice little treats. It's those little hidden hidden gems for you. Well, as, as we're suggesting here, as the people who selected it, the people who had that first tasting, it doesn't jump out at you. It, it really takes... A little bit of uh, visiting and revisiting. Mm-hmm. I even wonder if it benefits from a little bit of oxidation. Yeah, having the having the bottle open for for a moment or three, uh, where it starts to appear, and maybe now that we're saying this on the podcast, people freshly opening it might go looking for it and find it a little easier. But without thinking about it, it took a little bit to creep up on us. Yeah. Well, you know, we we tasted it in Scotland and tasted it again here in the U.S. before we actually said yes to it, and neither time did we taste that smoke. So, yeah, you know, this is the beautiful thing about whiskeys. Always changing. There's always something for you, something new for you to discover. And we are. We're always talking about that evolution. 
Yeah. Right. There's the evolution from first opening to mm. returning to it, to getting halfway through a bottle, to then getting beyond halfway, to then having just a few dregs in the bottle, and the the contents are are forever evolving. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's a for me it's a fun part of of the drinking aspect, yeah. as I am prone to have a wee drink <laughs> now and again. So that's the blended malt being released on June four hundred and ten dollars a bottle. $110 a bottle, 594 bottles from that single cask, and 64.8% alcohol. That's a whole lot of numbers we just threw at people, but hopefully yeah. we got it straight. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Does it does it make it 15 minutes? Does it make it two hours? Does it make it a weekend? Given what we've just seen from the rum, I don't think the blended malt's going to make it more than a weekend. Time will tell. Time will tell. But with the future in mind, we had four other whiskeys that are winging their way to our warehouse right now. And we're actually hoping that they'll arrive within the next two to three weeks or so. And I wanted to share what those were really quickly uh, before we went on to some some emails that we've got. We've been collecting emails and I thought it'd be a good time to start reading them. But first <laughs> to the matter at hand. As many listeners may remember, and if you're a Single Cast Nation member as, as well, you, you might recall this, we released earlier in 2020 the first in our woodcut series that was our 30-year-old Bowmore, and the second in our woodcut series is arriving, and that is our 30-year-old Imperial so we've got, what, 100 and... I think the label says 151 bottles, but I think it's closer to 144. And yep. it's 46.6% alcohol, natural cast strength. Natural cast strength. We're going to be repeating that one right through the launch. Right, such a low ABV. What else do we have? Oh, we've got the... What was meant to come uh, in, in the first shipment, the eight-year-old... Colila from a refill sherry butt. That's it. Just goes to show yeah. when you when you bring ten or eleven casks into the country at the same time, it's yeah. easy for one sherry butt to fall through the cracks. And we thought the Kalila had come to our San Francisco warehouse, and it hadn't. So it is safely sitting in Scotland, waiting to come over right now, though. You had some some really nice descriptive words about this Kalila the last time we we talked about it about the about the the subtleties of that refill sherry butt. Could you share with our listeners what how you were explaining it to me? Yeah, yeah. It's also how we how we discussed it at the the May twenty seven tasting as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Is I, I picked up a, a Chieftain's Le Chig from our, our good friend Bikram at Norfolk Wine and Spirits. And it's a, a sherry butt matured Le Chig. And when you look at the colour of it, doesn't look like it ever spent a day in any kind of sherry vessel. <laughs> or, or a bourbon vessel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like it is pretty clear. Yeah. On the Le Chig, it is, yeah. it is a clear one. Um, and then you nose it and there's there's not a lot of sherry on the nose. But then when you taste this Le Chig from Norfolk Wine and Spirits, it becomes chewy. And looking at the colour and revisiting the nose, it's not clear where this chewiness comes from. 
our Kalila lives that exact same life. Mm. It's pale in color, not not clear, but it, it's certainly on the paler side. The nose, you go searching for the sherry influence and there's there's not a lot there. But as soon as it meets your palate, boy, does it get chewy. Do you get some spice? Do you get some dried fruit? Do you get some red fruits? It's really all there on the palate. And, yeah. and immediately, immediately on the palate, you say, oh, sherry cask maturation here. But it just slowly sneaks <laughs> up on you, creeping along. And it's, it's fun in that, in that regard. And it's it's young. It's an eight year old Kalila, which you know has always been my my druthers is the young active Islas. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. want that that peated component, that smoky, that coal, uh, maybe that chipotle pepper from from young uh, peated Islas. And so, yeah, that framed with a little bit of sherry. Mm, it's it's well worth your time. Mm-hmm. And, and what are we putting that up for? I don't know if we're talking prices at this point, but a uh, hundred, yeah, hundred and ten. So that one is a hundred and ten. Uh, yeah, that sherry yeah. component makes sense there. The, the sherry component, and you know, I, I would say the, the the tariffs definitely hit that one a little bit. I was hoping oh, for Isla. it to come in, and it's Isla, yeah. right? Look at look at what we've been paying for some Isla things. Where you know we put our ten year old Lafroy into retail a, a year or two ago. A suggested retail price on that was one hundred and sixty-five dollars. Yeah, for for a ten-year-old single cask Lafroig, and it was the first release in the retail to sell out, right? And also keep in mind, as it relates to these four casks coming in, the third cask I want to talk about is from a single bourbon barrel, and it's a blended Isla cask. Yeah. So, yep, and that one's only ninety-five dollars. Yep. Right, and that's that's a nine-year-old blended Isla, and the one thing that we know is that there are two big corporations that own two distilleries on Isla. You've got Diageo that owns Lagavulin and Kalila, and then you've got Beam Suntory that owns Lafroig and Beaumore. When everybody tastes this, they can let us know which two distilleries they think. It's from. I know who I think it's from, but you know that's my story. Yeah, so. and reading back over our notes, to my mind, our notes make it clear who I think the so two too. distilleries I are think as so well. But, but yeah, as you say, blended malt. So partly you save a, a few a few shekels because you're not on a, a single malt and partly it's not susceptible to the tariffs. Yep. So n- 95 for fresh bourbon, blended Isla, just a cracking, cracking yeah. round. Yeah, yep. not too shabby there. And you know what? This this fourth one, another good price in, in my opinion. This is a 19-year-old Stones of Stenness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whiskey from the from the Orkneys, and there's only two distilleries on the Orkneys, and this is from the more well known distillery. Uh, yeah. Also, also the distillery that's a hair closer to the, the stones Standing of- Stones of Stenness. Yeah, there you go. But that that was is this our yeah. third Stones of Stenness selection? We've done one for retail. We did the collaboration with Olo from the Magic Tavern. Is this our third this Stones is our of third. Stainless? Yeah, this is our third. 
right? And so this is from a bourbon hoggy, and it's just so delicate and floral and lovely, just yellow fruits and rainier cherries in there. Just to get a host of wonderful things going on in that whiskey with, you know, just tinder sticks, you know, mm. burning in the distance. Just really, really <laughs> fun. So that should be in our warehouse. We're hoping within the next two or three weeks, this episode goes live on June 3rd. So with luck, we'll start selling these late June, early July. But you know what? You never know these days. We'll, we'll see how it all plays out. Just before we get out of the news segment, also with an eye to the future, we've mentioned the May 20 and May 27 Zoom tastings we did. Before we did the Zoom tastings, we actually did what some of our nation members have been calling a BYOSCNB event, which was a bring your own single cast nation bottle event. And we only announced it on Facebook because we wanted to see what the response might be like. We wanted to see how we might run that type of tasting event. Hugely successful. Nation members loved it, loved it. And even during the tasting, people were asking, when are we doing this again? Mm. So with an eye on June 9 at 8 p.m. Eastern United States time, Yep. We are going to host the second BYO SCNB event. And it's very simple. We'll post the, the Zoom details in the event page in our private nation member page on Facebook. And you'll just come and join us. Pull some single cast nation bottles off your shelf. And we're happy to answer questions about them, tell you the stories behind them, answer any other questions you might mm -hmm. have, talk about recent releases, upcoming releases, anything. Anything Single Cast Nation is on the table. Uh, you, you know we're as transparent as they come. And and what's really lovely, obviously we did the, the first version of this during lockdown. What's really lovely is seeing the faces of people we either interact with online yeah. or we ship bottles to. It was really nice to see them in one virtual room and have some some back and forth and get to hear where they're joining us from. It, it was it was so much fun. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll throw this out there as well, Joshua. Given that Single Cast Nation has gone global, we will also run an event where we will pick a time slot that allows people east of the eastern United States <laughs> to join us as well. Um, yeah. Because we want to see as many nation members, fans, obviously we only have the online nation in the United States, but people who are picking up retail uh, in Sweden, in England, in um, Japan. Hey, let's get the Japanese in. Come on, let's have some fun. Um just, just keep spreading the good word of the nation and just see people uh, who support us uh, yeah. and they can see the people behind the brand. Yep. And uh, and we can, we can chit-chat accordingly. Looking forward to these. But the important takeaway for this moment is June 9 at 8 p.m. Eastern will be the next online BYOSCNB event. And Eastern U.S. time. Because the U.S. is all that matters. <laughs> That's not true. Um, I can't believe I, as an American, have to be telling you that. Um, <laughs> now that we've got the news behind us, Jason, there are some emails that, that we've been sitting on for a while. Actually, far more emails than we have time for. 
so I've picked some out for us to discuss, and uh, I wanted to see if you're game for that, Jason. You ready? ready always, to, yeah. always, always. So the first one that I want to bring up, and actually, I'm I'm really excited to be bringing this one up because the author of this email is is a future guest on on One Nation Under Whiskey. The person that we're talking with, listeners may remember his name, the good Matt Skinny Roberts. He is the special projects coordinator at Black Raven Brewing, and and so a future episode with him is us talking about brewing, about fermentation, about maturing beer in cask and and potential pitfalls and what to look out for. and So much, so much to discuss. That was yeah. a good, good nerdy yep. chat with him. And we talked yeast, which is something our yep. our listeners are very partial to. Yeah, yeah. So, so look out for that episode. In the meantime... <laughs> In the meantime, here's a question. <laughs> he emails <laughs> us and he says, Lady and gentlemen-ish. <laughs> he had <to> until ish. <laughs> cheeky, <laughs> cheeky bugger. He says, I hope this question finds you all well. These times are so strange, so I understand that you may not be able to answer this as it seems a strange question. Interesting. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't sound like him. He doesn't ask strange questions. No, he asks he, good, thorough questions. He does, he does. So let's see if this is a strange one. He says, with so many people being interested in certain years and vintages or even months of distillation, how... Will 2020 distillate be affected in 12, 18, 21, et cetera years? Yeah. Right? Being that many distilleries have stopped or are producing hand sanitizer versus putting distillate in cask, will the 2020 year of distillation whiskey drive up cost simply due to scarcity? He says, just a thought, admittedly, after a few, and then in print, <laughs> he puts many beers. <laughs> I think there are, first of all, I don't think this is a strange question at all. No, I, I think this is sense. absolutely spot on and, and timely. I, but I think, to my mind, there are two initial responses, certainly from within our experiences. Number one is, how many American producers mm-hmm. is this going to bury? And so we might not have the luxury of saying, oh, let's go back and look at that window where things were crazy during the spring of 2020. I I worry that they will just simply go to the wall and that'll be the end of them. And and that's really heartbreaking. Knowing families who've put heart, soul, blood, sweat, tears Mm. into distilleries to keep them open, to keep them running, to have something seemingly unforeseen just destroy them. Real, yep. real shame. If you're an American producer who has made it through this, and and as Skinny says, there's been hand sanitizer attached to that, then yes, we will have the luxury of looking backwards and saying, oh, what about that window where uh, there was no production or limited production? Uh, what does what does that look like? Yeah, it makes I it makes it, just really quickly. It makes me think of you know you searching for your Henry McKenna's for for your kids and people looking yeah, right. for certain. Blanton's dump dates, you know, there right. could be that. Right. You know, well, down here, the here we are sitting here, June 1, and Catoctin Creek just did an infinity barrel release where they bought back so many barrels that couldn't be sold yeah. to restaurants and bars because of the lockdown. 
And we picked up a bottle to support our friends at Catoctin Creek. Yep. I'm sure many, many, many other people will have pitched in there to support them. 100% of profits are going to support those who lost jobs through this lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that'll be something that sits on a shelf that will forever be the Infinity Barrel that was released during lockdown or yeah. during phase one at the end of lockdown. It's <laughs> very timely. So so for me, that's, that's one aspect is this American side and what you and I see and the people that you and I know. The second aspect will be on the Scottish side where think about things like 1976 Ben Riach, right? We talk okay. about, oh, that, that special summer, those special yeah. casks, those tropical fruit notes that appear in 1976 summer Ben Riax, mm-hmm. right? What does it now look like as we get eight years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years into the future and we start seeing spring 2020 dates on releases? And, and again, just like our interview with Udi was timely with the, the New York Times article, our question from Skinny is timely, as just towards the end of last week, we, we mm-hmm. did some Zoom drinking socialising with good friend Ian Allen from Glen Murray mm-hmm. uh, and Ronnie Rutledge, who many people remember from Glen Glassa, who's now working on the independent bottling side. And we were asking them, you chaps are in Elgin, what, what's happening? What are you seeing? Is there lockdown? Is there shutdown? And, and Ian was telling us, yes, yes, oh, yeah. many space-side distilleries shut down production during the, the full lockdown that they experienced in Scotland. And so will people be looking for January 2020 cask dates, knowing that there's going to be an absence of March, May 2020 cask dates? Potentially, you know... Uh, you you went about it in a, in a different manner than I expected. You know, I was thinking of basically what happened to the Scotch whiskey industry in the early to late '80s, right when when you had so many distilleries shutting down, and you know, with some distilleries, there there are years where they weren't producing. I think mm-hmm. from a from a Scottish perspective, if everything turns around and we can get the world, you know, back in place, back back to where it was before COVID, then what we're going to see on the Scottish side is more of a blip as compared to what we saw, you know, in the 80s. Um, yeah. in, in the U.S., I, I think you're 100% correct. There are so many micro distilleries that are going to be affected in likely the most negative of ways. And that rings true in, in other countries as well, where there's plenty of, you know, new distillery startups that are trying to make whiskey, trying to make vodka, trying to make gin. And if they're still up and running, they're, they're making hand sanitizer. Well, then, and look what you and I just covered in the last episode of Extra Extra, where it was about Pennsylvania craft distilleries trying to find a way to survive. Mm-hmm. And and I just keep reading article after article that says alcohol sales might be up, craft producers are seeing virtually none of that business. Yeah. It's it's a return, a retreat, if you will, to established, known, affordable brands. And I'm I'm not going to name names, but if you can pick up a 15 or 20 or $30 handle 
as opposed to a 50, 60, $75 craft produced uh, product, in these times, we're seeing people picking up the cheaper handle oh, and yeah. not necessarily supporting the craft producer who pays living wages, has a small operation, is trying to get off the ground. It's it's a very, very difficult time to be a craft producer. Yeah. And I, I don't know what that landscape is going to look like when we come out the other side. Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll end it with this. And th- this is something that I think Robin Robinson told us when we interviewed him some two years ago. And we talked about what the landscape of craft distillers could look like, you know, five, ten years from now. And he said, the unfortunate thing is, at some point in time, there's going to be a lot of copper on the market. A lot of 100%. distilleries just throwing in the towel. Yeah. Well, um, and 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 in you know for for years of discussing that it's been the meritocracy, right? It's mm-hmm. where will you find your market? Will you be a craft producer who has the entire U.S. nation open to you? Will you have a European part of your business? Will you have an Asian part of your business? Will you become hyper local? where it's people in your local town, your county, mm. who are the people who keep coming back. You might not expand into something massive, but you might be able to have an ongoing business. Yeah. And but, but it'll be based on your quality. Somebody might buy your bottle to support you the first time, to see how you're doing, see how you're looking. But if you're not making good product, they're not coming back through your door. And we thought it would be the meritocracy that would lead to copper coming on the market. Imagine a global pandemic yeah, just coming yeah, yeah. through like a like like a metaphorical tsunami and just laying waste to to 90% of an industry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely shocking. And then you still see the same result. A lot of copper going on the market. So yeah, yeah, trying times, trying telling times. Uh we'll we'll continue to keep an eye on it and we'll continue to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that that was a bit of a conversational cul-de-sac. Let's see if let's see if the good Timothy Gullicksrud could take us out of this. Uh, he is a Tim, and and we, you have established on this podcast that Tim is shorthand for a good fellow. Tim Tim is shorthand for a good fellow. Where there's another name, which is shorthand for another, but we'll go with Tim. Uh, so Tim says, good afternoon. I've got a question for you about your online MGP light whiskey mash bill. I'm trying to organize an American whiskey tasting that gradually increases the rye in the mash bill. And then he... He's, That's he a says, smart idea. I like he's that. really smart. And he lists out a, um, a whiskey advocate article that inspired him. And so people can search up the article... Uh, the the author is not listed in the article, I'm afraid, but the hmm. um, that's strange. Yeah, but the headline says uh, from high rye bourbon to 100% rye, taste your way up the rye ladder. Yeah, yeah. Am I right in saying wild turkey rye is 51% rye? Um, I don't know. Not that they, not that they, not that they re- release their mash bills, but is, isn't that the word on the street? That's the that word. That's the word just on over the, the line. That's the word on the street. Yeah. We asked Catoctin Creek, who we just mentioned a moment ago, 100% rye. 100% rye. Yeah. 
There you go. Yeah. Both rise. Yeah. And so he, he goes on, he says, I think throwing an MGP in there as a curveball when everyone expects bourbon and rye would be fun. Google tells me that MGP light whiskey is pretty much only corn, 99% corn, 1% malted barley. Can -hmm. you confirm or deny this? It says, no pressure either way, but if you know off the top of your head, I would appreciate it. Cheers and thanks. The good Tim Gullick's Rudd. Did he sign at the good Tim Gullick's Rudd? No, I I guess I didn't have to say the good, right? Because Tim is just shorthand (laughs) for being good. Um, no, I, I, I was like, like if that's on his business cards now, because he's he's just a good guy. So he's a good lad. So here's what we do know about light whiskey. Our understanding is that there is 100% the mash bill that he mentioned: 99% corn, 1% malted barley. The trick is distilling that mash bill above 80% or below 95%. And then mature that spirit into a used oak cask, basically an ex-bourbon barrel or potentially an ex-rye barrel, right? However, we had heard, and and though we don't we haven't seen the documentation on this, we have heard that there was a secondary mash bill that MGP or more likely Seagram's at, you know, at that time, some twenty plus years ago. Mm-hmm. where they use the standard mash bill, which I think is around 70% corn or 73% corn, a certain amount of rye and a certain amount of of malt. But again, distilled to that higher ABV and put into used casks. We cannot tell you exactly what the mash bill is in our releases. All we know is that our understanding is that there were potentially two mash bills and that the older light whiskey may have had this this mash bill that included rye, but but we can't be for certain. That's the truth of the matter. Yeah, that is the truth of the matter. I think Tim's question is a good little uh, segue, a segui, if you will. Okay. Into a question we got from Liz Katie. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, we haven't heard from Liz in a while. We've seen her, but we haven't heard from her. <laughs> and and actually, the subject of her email says, since I haven't emailed in a while, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> she did close out one of, I think um, she and Natalie were at the BYOSCNB event. Mm. And I think Liz got out of there saying, I need to send you chaps an email. And so a woman of her word. So she sent us this email and she sent a follow-up one with with a cocktail recipe that I wanted to share with people. But let's get to this question really quickly. Okay. What she's saying here, she's asking for an episode. She says, episode request, question mark. Okay. I'm I'm sure you're probably working on it anyway, but I'd love an episode (laughs) with someone who distills or or markets for a volume distillery like MGP, Gervin, North British, etc. What's uh-huh. it like to distill for blends and or distill under contract for their producers? Uh-huh. What's different in the process? What they aim for in production? That sort of thing. It all makes good sense. And it's certainly something that's on our radar. I think as we've alluded to in the answer to Tim, there's not necessarily one person that either you get to speak to or you're allowed to speak to. And even if you do, they're not always allowed to reveal the information. Well, 
Yeah. You know, the, the, the big the big production facilities are much more spirit factories. And you know, whereas on the single malt side, yes, you get to learn the name of distillery managers. Yes, they get to come out and talk about production and we're hearing more about barley strains and yeast strains and you know types of maturation there's i think a a bigger developing story at the single malt level mm. the the grain level the large production facility level they're just in the business of running the column still 24/7 which is why you know, and we got an episode with him, Denny Potter, when we visited with him and yeah. when he was still with Heaven Hill and he ran us through the Bernheim facility mm -hmm. and we saw the mass of columns still, the multiples, the fermentation tanks that were massive, um, the warehousing, which was vast. He was very honest, very open, answered a lot of questions for us. That's rare on that side of that type of production. However, we were blazing a trail in Scotland. We were blazing a trail in Scotland. Before before I touch on that, I think Natalie, Natalie, <laughs> I think Liz touched on a bit of why it could be so difficult in getting some of the information from these distilleries. And it's it's that their clients are under contract. Right, mm. these distilleries are contract distilling, yeah, which may mean yeah. that they're producing exclusive uh, mash bills or special cast types or you know w whatever, and they may not be at liberty to to talk about all of the ins and outs. But 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 as as you were starting to point out, you and I had a meeting with uh, the good Kirsty McCallum at uh, Glen Murray, and actually Glen Murray slash Starlaw, which is one yep. of Scotland's newest grain distilleries. I think they're only about eight or nine years old now. Um, but it's a massive grain distillery that produces 25 million liters of spirit per year. And that's exactly. all meant to go into blends. And so it would have given us an opportunity in talking with her to, to, to learn a bit more. But that meeting was scheduled for, I think, April 9. And, oh, and our entire trip to Scotland, which was, which was meant for that first week in April, was, was yeah. completely uh, wiped off the books to a future date. Well, and in talking to Kirsty, um, La Martinique's, who owned Glen Murray, who owned Starlaw, mm -hmm. uh, had also acquired... Cutty Sark. Yep. And so there was room within that conversation to speak to somebody in charge of putting blended product together. Yeah. What's that challenge like? What's that goal like? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we will definitely be able to put Lizzie's type of questions before Kirsty. And we will we'll see Kirsty in the future. It might not be 2020, it might be 2021. But we will definitely be able to put those questions in front of Kirsty and, and get a feel for that side of the industry. I'm not sure how many of those types of interviews we'll be able to, to have, but we definitely already have Kirsty saying she's more than willing to sit down and talk. Yep. Yeah. And she's a wonderful person to talk to. Yeah, she's so much fun. Yep. So much fun. Really yeah, excited for that. 
just towards the end of last week, she actually did an Instagram Live event with the good Ian Allen, very good friend of ours. And boy, they were just laughing it up. And to have, you know, Ian, who's visitor center manager, but also global brand ambassador for Glen Murray, mm. chatting away with Kirsty, who's in charge of all casks and all blending and all single malt releases, like it's a massive job title. Um, to have the two of them on Instagram just chuckling back and forth, drinking Glen Murray, partnering it with uh, mm-hmm. with chocolate. It was such a laugh. It was so good. Unfortunately, I got pulled away. I only saw the first half of it. But uh, I recommend, I, I don't know if they put a copy up on YouTube or anything, but oh. it's it was a good laugh. I really enjoyed it. But it speaks to the two people, uh, Ian and Kirsty, yeah. and the type of people they are that, uh, that it was. It was just a good good fun time. And they were taking tons of questions, uh, one of which was about Cutty Sark as well. Yeah, that's great. So listen, Jason, I'm, I'm cognizant of our time. Thank you. And so not only do I want to to let our listeners go, but but I know you've got chores you need to get to. I want to let do. you it's, go. I do. I'll be, I'll be very honest with you and our listeners. I actually have to take my kid, my eldest, over to his middle school where we have to sit in a line of cars to get his possessions back from school mm-hmm. and drop off the library books that he's had for many a month now. <laughs> and it's so interesting. It's all a dance. It's sitting in the car. It's them getting the name. They then put it on a table. And once they leave the table, my son can then go to the table and collect his stuff and bring it back to the car. It's, it's an yep. elaborate dance that we will try not to screw up. We had to do the same with our with our eldest daughter as well. So, <laughs> God, what a time go. to be alive! <laughs> so, well, this is this has been fun. This has, it been, has been this has been a lot of fun. That was a great interview with some really exciting news, and then three wonderful emails. And you know, the company hasn't been too bad. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree. Uh, the company for you hasn't been too bad for me. But you know, exquisite. I think would be your position on the company, but it's... I'm not sure that word means what you think it means. <laughs> you did say there was a a recipe that you wanted to share. Ah, yeah, uh, let's from let's Natalie thank you and so much. Thank you so much. Let's let's get out on this. So, yeah, we got an email from from Natalie. So so it's good to point out that you know the the email we got from Liz Liz and Natalie are are a couple, right? They they're wife and wife and they wife are and lovingly known as the whiskey lesbians. A, a moniker created by them. It's by them. us yes. putting this down upon them. <laughs> we have we have adopted their own moniker because we love it and it really fits in with what we were describing in the Amanda Schuster episode as well. So. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so, and so this is the cocktail if you, if you feel like making it. I know I'm going to make it, though I, I need a couple of ingredients here. Yeah. And the cocktail is called the Whiskey Lesbian. Yes, the cocktail is called the Whiskey Lesbian. And so it's one and a half ounces of Westland Sherry Wood, 1.25 ounces of, I've got to pronounce this one, Jesus. Yeah, you, you got some, unpro- I like that you rose to this challenge because you've got some unpronounceables in there. But just like you're known for your fluent German, let's hear your fluent French slash Italian. Yeah, so so the second ingredient is 1.2 ounces of, of s- <laughs> food. <laughs> how do you, how does S and F go together? Sfumato. Sf- 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 Rabarbar. 
Jesus Christ. You sure you want to get us out here on the Yeah, no, no. We just call it done when we were done. This is great. So it's 1.25 ounces of Sifumato (laughs) Rabarbaro. Sounds more like Clamato when you say it. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it sounds like it's a, some potentially like a rhubarb thing. Yeah, looks like a rhubarb thing. Yeah, I'll you know I'll spell it for people. S F U M A T O. Next word, R A B A R B A R O. And then a quarter ounce of creme de violette. Creme, did I get that right? Creme. Be- beautiful, absolutely beautiful. A few dashes of Angostura bitters. Hmm. And this is what tied it together for me. Served up in a glass rinsed with Laphroaig. I know, that that got my attention as well. Yeah. I hope people make this. If people do make this cocktail... And, and Liz, Natalie, if you're listening to this, we would love it if you want to post pictures, if you want to post a video on how to make it. How um, to pronounce it? How to pronounce it. Sifumat, <laughs> Sifumat. How would you pronounce that, Jason? Sifumato. Yeah, Clamato. No, 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 no. Sifumato. Yeah, I'd pronounce it Clamato. <laughs> I had a real bad case of Clamato uh, back in back in Do you know that? Yes, clam juice combined with tomato juice, it comes in cans. Clamato is a real thing. I see Clamato on our grocery shelves all the time, and I I vomit into my hoodie every time I see it. Sounds horrific. Horrific. Anyway, okay. Anyway, we've sent them up. Gotta go. Gotta gotta beat it out of here. All right. Go beat the kids. Beat on the brat. Beat on the brat. Beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, clang, clang, clang goes the trolley. Cheers to you, brother. Cheers, homie. Later, Skitter.